next episode is made possible by wowdigital.com, your trusted partner for nonprofit and charity website and design. Ever wondered how to empower your end users through design? Are you familiar with design research or design thinking? Stay with us and by the end, you'll have the insights that can transform the way you approach design and education in your organization. Welcome to the Nonprofit Digital Success Podcast. I'm your host, David, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about all things design research with Cheryl Kababa. Cheryl is the author of Closing the Loop, which is a mastermind in systems thinking and equity-centered design. As Chief Strategy Officer at Seattle's Substantial Studio, she's transformed digital strategies for impactful entities like the Gates Foundation. Residing in Seattle, Cheryl delights in complex baking projects and imparts her expertise at the University of Washington's design program. Cheryl, thank you so much for being here on the episodes today. Thank you. Excited to talk all things design. So am I. I love design. I'm a designer at heart. I don't do enough of it. You know, staying trendy, staying on point, learning here the new styles and what's going on and how can we incorporate accessibility into design. I think we're going to have a really amazing conversation today. Yeah, I'm excited. Awesome. So I guess let's start at the beginning. What is design research? Design research, it's basically understanding the needs of your end users or end beneficiaries, people who will be using or affected by the products and solutions that you're developing and really understanding their context and involving them at every step of the way within the design process. So we call it design research because it's a little bit different from just like pure academic research and that you're just trying to create insight and it rather design research informs eventual design solutions. And so we always have that in mind as we're conducting research. How can a nonprofit think about things in a design research methodology? One of the things we do, I work a lot in education. So I work with philanthropies and ad tech developers who are basically creating digital solutions for the most part in education, as well as various services. And we kind of describe our work as seeking to elevate student voice throughout the process. So really trying to understand students' contacts in terms of like what kinds of products and processes are they using now within their education. So we're doing project on, you know, potential math solutions, math digital solutions. We'll be talking to students about their experiences in math, not just with digital solutions, but just kind of like their perspectives in general. And then later on, involve them in coming up with ideas. You know, we call that stage of the design process ideation for potential solutions or how to solve some of the problems we identified. And then later on, they would validate the solutions as they become prototyped and we would test with them. So it's basically taking whoever is kind of like typically least powerful in the in the design process and empowering them to have input and context. What's a way that you could empower somebody that isn't as involved in the process? One of the ways that sort of design research, again, kind of differs from traditional forms of research is that we often engage in what we call participatory methods. Sometimes in many organizations, you might hear this described as co-design or co-creation. And what that means is identifying problems or challenges or opportunities and bringing actual like end users into the process. In healthcare, this might mean 
involving patients in the process of ideating. In education, it means students and teachers, like people who are at, often at the receiving end of solutions that get like tossed to them and they are just like, okay, I don't know if I like how this is designed or I don't even know what it's good for. And basically giving them the tools to be engaged with product developers throughout process. And for example, we just had a workshop where we're asking students to imagine the future of math. And it might not seem directly related to eventual product development because it seems so broad, but there's lots of like nuggets of wisdom that come out of that. Like, for example, students saying like they want math to be more directly relevant to their day-to-day life and to understand the point of it. And they want to get out of the theoretical. They want to do more collaborative work, those kinds of things can be inserted into ideation sessions so that they're imagining kind of like a future and future scenarios, but then those can funnel into like actual feasible ideas. I think that's really cool. End user centric design, being able to think from their perspective. And a lot of people, I think, really struggle with that, being able to go, okay, here's what we want because we're trying to solve this business problem. Uh, Maybe it's fundraising. Maybe it's how people use our services or the products that we provide or things like that. But what's their experience? How can we look through their lens? And I think this is what you're talking about there. Yeah. If you just think about kind of well-designed digital consumer products, you know, we oftentimes like point to Apple. It's funny because you were just complaining about your (laughs) Apple is oftentimes held up as a standard for really good and engaging end user experiences. But, you know, you also get that on products, good or bad, like Instagram, right? It's kind of giving you what you want in the moment. And it's really super easy to use. It's very engaging. And those lessons can be learned rather than causing harm by creating kind of digital distraction things like that, they can be used as well for good purposes in spaces like education. Like how do you make ed tech products more engaging? You can borrow from some of those kinds of tenants that are used in consumer digital products. And the way that they arrived at that for those consumer digital products is by doing loads of research. So having people testing and constantly getting feedback and improving their products. So by its nature, design thinking is an iterative process, which means you have the opportunity to take that feedback and feed it back into your product or service or the way you do things. It's a really effective way of just extending who your stakeholders are, kind of understanding their needs and wants, and then acting on it and also feeding that input back into the process. One of the things that I like to do when I talk with our clients, and I think I've mentioned it on a couple of episodes in the podcast here, is ask yourself why. But ask yourself why three to five times. What is it that you're trying to solve this? Why are we trying to solve that? Because X, Y, and Z. But why is this a problem? Because blah, blah, blah. Then you can actually really get to the core of why you're doing what you're doing, who you're trying to help, and how you're trying to help. Then once you really understand the core, what it is and why it is, you can then start to address how you're going to solve that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's this one startup founder, now investor, he had often said, fall in love with with your problem, not with the solution. So really understand the problem space and what you're trying to solve for. And also, as you mentioned, the outcomes you're trying to achieve. And then those two things, whatever the problem, the clarity on what the problems are, as well as the outcomes you're trying to achieve, should meet in the middle in terms of what the solution should be. So the solution shouldn't come first. There's a lot of things out there where it's 
feels like a solution searching for a problem. I think, for example, a lot of the generative AI that we're experiencing right now kind of falls into that category where it's kind of, okay, now we have all of this information and it's being processed in this way. What is it good for? And not to say that's a terrible way to innovate, but I think if you're working in the nonprofit space and you're kind of really focused on problem solving in specific areas and for specific communities, then you really want to understand the problem and you really want to be clear on what your outcomes are. Yeah, and I think this ties in quite a bit into like equity centered design and the way that we reshape and we engage with our audiences. What are your thoughts? How nonprofits can think and work in that way? I think if you have kind of neutral view of design thinking, you can just look at it as like, oh, we're just trying to serve like the average user in education. We're just trying to serve the average student. And what that means is that you see a lot of ed tech products, for example, being developed around like really privileged students, you know, in very like white dominant environments and they have a lot of resources and their schools have a lot of resources. Now, in our sort of like equity center design practice, we use what I think in many circles is called inclusive design. So really kind of thinking about who are the people, the end users and end beneficiaries who maybe have the most extreme experiences and designing for them or maybe are least served by today's solutions and today's system. So, for example, we do a lot of work that's meant to benefit students from historically under-resourced communities that can be Black, Latino, Indigenous students, as well as multilingual learners. The idea is that if you design for them, it will sort of like trickle up and everybody else will benefit too. And that can be used for designing many different products. You know, some of the examples you just see in the real world are, for example, like curb cuts. Curb cuts were designed for those with mobility issues, but a lot of other people benefit from that too. If you're pushing a stroller, you benefit from it. If you're pulling or pushing anything on wheels, if you're like walking with your bike, you benefit from that, even though it wasn't designed for you because it was designed for those who have an extreme experience. Same with subtitles and movies and TV. Like those are meant for people who have difficulty hearing. You know, you can kind of see that others can benefit as well. So that's kind of the perspective is like designing for those who tend to have the worst experiences today and are the least supported and design for them and everybody else will benefit. Just back to the the closed captioning comment, there's a good friend of mine who swears up and down that their children could read as good as they do because on their main television, they've turned closed captioning on. But as the kids are watching their TV shows, they've got the closed captioning on so they can kind of like follow along as well. So yeah, totally hear your point about making sure that what you're doing helps maybe some of those, I don't like saying the word, but like outlier cases. And yeah, it will help more people. It will bring inclusion and help those that might not think that they need it, but can still benefit from it, right? It's like somebody that goes for years and years and years without going to the eye doctor. Then they go and they get a very minimal prescription for a pair of glasses. Yeah, they could see the world fine before, but now everything is like really clear. They didn't know what they were missing until they had something in place to help them. Yeah, exactly. And the avenue for that is those are who you should be doing research with. Those are who you should be doing co-design with because then they can come to the table with their lived experience and help inform design decisions and, you know, basically kind of like the work you're doing so that it's not just confined to those who have the most power in decision making, but that there is input from those who will be most affected by what you're designing and creating. 
Love that. Are there any key principles that a nonprofit or charity should be thinking of when trying to embark down the equity-centered research road? Yeah, I actually wrote a little bit about this, and it's very different than conducting traditional research. So when you are kind of working with individuals in those communities who have suffered from a lot of trauma or who are essentially from like historically marginalized environments, the idea is that you should have representation on your team first and foremost. So like have researchers or designers or developers, people on your team who have that lived experience as well. So that is not what we sometimes call parachute design, where like you are parachuting into a community that's not yours and you're like, I'm going to work here to try to understand them. It just reminds me of like real like, you know, 19th century explorers would go to like Polynesia or something and just be like, oh my gosh, they were so savage there. And not having that perspective is really important. It's really important to just like to really like have lived experts on your team. So oftentimes because we work with diverse communities, we sometimes have what we call cultural moderators on our team. So like people who can sort of work to bridge that between like our team and the communities that we're working with. We bring in people from the community on our team. The other thing is that there's this really great paper called Why Am I Always Being Researched? It was published by the organization Chicago Beyond. Um, I recommend anybody who's embarking on research with communities that are not theirs to look at it because it kind of talks about the potential harm that design researchers can cause if they're not practiced in kind of thinking about like how do you engage communities like blowing in, doing a lot of research, releasing your papers and your insights and then dipping straight out and they never hear from you again and nor do these problems ever get solved. What's nice about design thinking is that the research is meant to directly inform potential approaches, solutions, interventions and things like that. The idea is that you should be engaging with folks from the community in participatory design. So not just understanding their context, but also imagining the future, much like how we engage students and kind of like imagining the future of math. So I think that those are some tenets. Don't just like extract people's stories, engage them in like the imaginative part, which is the fun part is really like thinking about what the future could look like. Make sure to validate that with them later on. And then also, yeah, super important have representation on your team. And also you should understand your positionality as a designer or as of any sort of practitioner who's going to be doing this kind of work. Where do you come from? What are your biases? What are the ways that inform your ways of thinking? And make sure that you have self-awareness about that as you go into this process. Just your point about the team, making sure you've got diversity, not just in nationality or race or gender or affiliation or anything like that. If you don't have that in your team, seek out people from the community to volunteer, to participate, to help in some way. You'd be surprised how many people are willing to give up some of their time to, to help an organization that has impact in their community. Yeah, I would stress not asking them to volunteer, but actually paying them for their time, which is really important to us, is making sure people understand they are valued in this process. And we're not just asking them to, you know, if we're getting paid for this work, so should you. I think that's an important aspect of it is making sure that we are able to put monetary value on their time, as well as doing some kind of reciprocal activities. So because I work in education, like sometimes students are asking us, how do I get into the design field? Like, what do I need to do? So we oftentimes offer up mentoring, we offer up making connections to people or organizations, and even schools that might be helpful to learn from. And I think that's something that is a really important way to reciprocate with the communities that we're designing with. I think that's 
really great. And we're talking about like educational campaign. You're in the educational space. I've got about 11 years in post-secondary education. So let's talk I'm about sorry. Stinkmeter. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was so great working and, you know, connecting with the students. It was just such a really awesome vibe. That, that was yeah, my experience. Yeah, I'm Maybe joking. Not experience, but it was mine. I'm joking. It's a complex system. It's a complex space, but it's also very fulfilling space for both students and educators. So I'm sorry. I was just kind of joking around there. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No worries. So when we think about stakeholders, what kind of stakeholder systems are needed to be successful? Yeah, that's such a good question. This is the intersection that I love between design thinking and systems thinking is that with design thinking, you bring in that focus on people and empathy and really understanding people's experiences and involving them. And with systems thinking, you're thinking about how broad are the stakeholders who I should be engaging? How are things interconnected? And what are the potential radiating effects of kind of the decisions we're making or the things that we're designing to insert into the system? So some good examples in education is that let's say you're coming up with courseware or something in the post-secondary system, right? Oftentimes there's a lot of digital courseware that's being used now in higher ed. You're not just thinking about how students are going to experience that, which is what you might do as a design thinker. You also have to take into consideration the other things that might cause the success or failure of this product or solution. And that could be like, what's the IT environment within the institution that you're hoping to deploy this at? What are the standards that are being required from education perspective. What is the regulatory environment when it comes to things like student privacy and data protection and things like that? Also, budget, finances, who is running the institution? What are their potential hopes and dreams? The way I think about that as you think about like how broad your stakeholders should be is one, doing kind of a stakeholder map. This is kind of where mapping is really useful. We'll work with different decision makers within the process and be like, who else needs to be involved? in this because they're going to have an impact on what you're trying to do and trying to understand all of their incentives because there's oftentimes really competing incentives along the way. For example, maybe your digital product can't be integrated within a university system because they only work with certain learning management systems, right? And so your IT director might just be like, no, nah, we're not going to go with that one. We're going to go with this one because it works better. It's less of a lift for my team. And so, you know, we're just going to go with that. And that might be a worse product for those who are in the classroom. But understanding what those incentives are and what drives people helps you develop solutions better so that you can take that into account. Like if you're talking to a variety of IT directors, then you'll understand what their incentives are and be like, okay, if they're a barrier to the uptake of this because they have certain preferences, we might want to work that in or we might need to know how to navigate that. And that's just one example. And I'm not trying to, oh yeah, IT directors are always blocking things. They are really like facilitating how digital products are used in various institutions. And so you can't sort of trivialize what their needs might be 
you need to kind of integrate that into your thinking and understanding how you create solutions. Yeah, you know, there's technical requirements in the students in this example. Do they have the hardware that can support whatever platform, right? Specs, are they on Chromebooks or Macs or PCs? What are the devices they're using? So there's all kinds of limitations that we might not initially consider. Yeah. If we were to kind of throw that, that concept, hey, you know what? There's things that we don't know about. Bringing people in, surveying, having communications, conversations, getting details about what it is that they do, how they're doing it, and really understanding that, you're going to learn an awful lot through that process, help inform some of the decisions that you get to go through the design thinking process. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of, I think you won't be able to solve for everything. You know, it's not like you can get every possible leak and, you know, block that or whatever. It's just knowing what you need to anticipate and being able to prioritize. An example I think about a lot in education, there was that time almost 10 years ago now where the LA Unified School District decided to give iPads to everybody. And I think it was this moment where, oh, yeah, we're kind of closing the digital divide. It's an equity thing. We're going to give these devices across the board to everybody. But they hadn't really kind of like considered the different barriers. There's so many students who don't have internet at home and now they're like digitizing experiences that used to be um, analog. So how can they possibly kind of do their schoolwork? There was sort of this friction between the publisher who was supposed to create the software and Apple and then the school district. And it was like there wasn't the right amount of planning between these entities to make sure like the timelines matched up and things like that. And then almost immediately there were accusations of students hacking the system. And I think there's kind of an open question about that. I think some of them were just like trying to kind of make this product work for them in the way that they want. There's a lot you can learn from like what people hack. <laughs> uh, there's a great video and every so often it'll pop up in my feed of this lady that appears to be a product designer. It's a split screen reaction video and the screen beside we've all probably seen you've got kids I've got kids you don't have kids you've probably seen kids play with a toy where there's a box there's shapes in the top and you have to fit the piece in so like the start piece goes in the start whatever right and but this video is this woman who appears to have been the one that invented this toy and like ooh square peg goes in the square hole and she's like yeah super excited rectangle peg goes in the square hole it's the same size shape she's like no but she's like kind of okay with it and then it goes to I think like a crescent shape goes in the square hole and there was a circle goes in the square hole and then there was a star and when the, like everything went in there and by the end of it it's broke down crying like how could you possibly do this to me and like I could see your face right, <laughs> right now Cheryl right like no things with the best of intentions but we don't necessarily know how somebody is going to interpret that or use it or whatever it is that they want to do. People want to push boundaries sometimes. Yeah, and I think you can actually get some of that. You're kind of like engaging those users throughout the process. You'll see this happening as you're kind of developing products and services. Yeah, I've seen some of the wildest things when people have been testing products. And we'll kind of like, oh my gosh, I had no idea they would try to do that. And that really resonates in some ways. It's funny because there's like a research lab, University of Washington, where I teach called Kids Team. And it's intentionally for product developers to come in with things that they're designing and developing for kids. And this is a group of kids who basically within this program to kind of learn about product design, I guess, you know, and they're like in elementary school, like I think the oldest age would be like 11 or 12. And I remember some of my students at University of Washington were testing products with them. And they were just like, they are savage. 
they will tear your product to pieces in terms of their critique of it, the way they test and use it. And it's very, very eye-opening because we do have a bias towards what we call in design the happy path, which is we think, oh, this is ideally how people will use this. And oftentimes it sort of blocks us or prevents us mentally from like accounting for the other ways that people might perceive this or the other ways people might use this. And so just watching somebody test something can just blow all those assumptions like out of the water, which is why that process is so important. I totally agree. We learn early on in our educational path that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. I think everybody, like if you've been to school in North America, probably many places around the world, you understand that concept to go from here to here, you got to go straight, right? And there's a really great photo of epic design fails kind of thing in real life. And one of them, it's a municipality. They drew, there's an aerial shot of it. It's a sidewalk that goes like this, but there's nothing in between. So this is like beaten path on a diagonal through the grass because people just want to cut through. They don't want, right? So what did they do? They ended up bringing the sidewalk back and making it bigger and rounding it and curving instead of going like right to the corner. They solved that, but they went through this thing of pouring brand new concrete and all this type of stuff. They maybe didn't plan for the way people actually use things. And I think that that's an important thing for us as designers, as people that work in nonprofits, how are people going to use our products? How are they interacting with us? How can they get in touch with us? How can they find out about what we do? Let's eliminate some of that friction. Yeah, it's funny you bring up that example because I used to work kind of a renowned user experience design firm called Adapted Path. And that's the idea is you want to understand the adaptive path that, you know, people will take or people are sort of inclined to take and design for that rather than kind of like designing something and seeing how people get around it or create their own rules. So instead, it's like it's easier to try to design for that to begin with, as you were saying, and you'll use a lot your resources if you kind of understand that you don't have to like pour all the concrete. Yeah, I really kind of love that example. And that's why it's kind of important to engage people throughout the process. Also, it's like a reminder, I want to say like one of the tenets of design research is actually not asking people what they want, because like people in general are pretty bad at articulating like what they want. You know, what's that famous Henry Ford quote, which was like, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster courses. So I think you can kind of understand context and then interpret some of that. And then when it comes to, you know, I had talked about ideation earlier, allowing people to really imagine things without any sort of constraints or restriction. It doesn't mean all of the things they imagine will become actual solutions, but sort of the way that they think about things can inform feasible solutions. So there is some interpretation that happens along the way, even within the community, right? Because there are these other things that you need to consider as you walk down the path of creating something new to problem solve for something specific. Amazing. Cheryl, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. We've learned some really great things from you that I can take back to my team. I hope the people listening have been able to get some really great insight, advice, even if it's just something to think about when you're going down your path of, okay, we want to serve this group of people in our community in this way. Well, is that really the way? And let's empower ourselves to think bigger, think big, think outside of the box. Let's rethink the way that we actually think. I think that's kind of an interesting way to understand what it is that we're, we're talking about is it's not about doing something new. I think it's really about figuring out a way of doing it more inclusively and better to serve the end goal. 
Yeah, totally agree with that. All right. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you, what do they need to do? Yes, I'm on LinkedIn. Just look up Cheryl Kababa. I'm the only one out there. I'm also on Twitter, just at Cheryl Kababa. And you can find my book on Rosenfeld Media, which is my publisher. And it's called Closing the Leap Systems Thinking for Designers. Amazing. So Cheryl, thanks again for joining in. It's been great having you here on the Nonprofit Digital Success Podcast. Everybody listening, if you want any of the details that we spoke about, want links to Cheryl's book or LinkedIn or Twitter X, whatever you want to call that social media platform, link to that. We're going to have all of that on our show notes page. Just head over to nonprofitdigitalsuccess.com. Click on this episode for all the details. Until next time, keep on being successful.